I was heavy into a research career doing my postdoc at Brown when I became pregnant. Then I had the baby and all my plans kind of hit the wall because I discovered that even though I'm an ambitious, really future-oriented person and worked very, very hard to put myself in a position where I thought I could do all the things that felt important to me, work hard, be a good parent, be a thoughtful partner, and it all kind of fell apart. Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus and joined as always by my good friend and colleague, Brad Stolberg. Brad, what's going on, my man? Not so much, Steve. It is another Wednesday and another recording session with you and with all of you, our wonderful listeners. Uh, If you're new to the podcast, we are 100% independent and member supported. That means that we do not take sponsors. We feel like they would push and pull us, even if only subconsciously, away from the evidence-based principles of excellence that we are dedicated to. So what that means is this podcast is supported by two primary vehicles. The first is our books, The Practice of Groundedness, Do Hard Things, and Peak Performance. If you like the podcast and you've yet to read or listen to our books, please grab a copy today. They're available wherever books are sold or listened to. The second is our Patreon, www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation. And there you can join our gold, silver, or bronze tier communities and get access to all sorts of great stuff, including a monthly book club with best-selling authors and live Zooms, guides to resilience and sustainable training for both sport and the business world, as well as discounted merch and really all sorts of other good things. So check us out on Patreon, www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation. And let's dive into our conversation today where we have a special guest, Yale Schoenbrunn who is the author of Work, Parent, Thrive, 12 Science-Backed Strategies to Ditch Guilt, Manage, Overwhelm, and Grow Connection. And this conversation, I got to say, Brad, was fabulous. We go from everything from parenting to youth sports to handling uncertainty, stress, and tension to developing you know, role clarity on our pursuits. So, If you're a fan of The Growth Equation, I can very confidently say this is a conversation you don't want to miss. So with that, let's dive into the conversation. Yeah, it's great to see you. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm so glad to be joining you and Steve for a conversation today. Yeah, we're thrilled to to have you with us. So for those that are new to you and your work, could you give the quick 30 to 60 second overview of how you came to your psychology practice and research, and then how you came to thinking about role tension and in particular, how it relates to working parents? Sure. So I am a clinical psychologist by training and um, started my research career studying relationships, so specifically mar- marriage and sort of how to help people in close relationships navigate uh, as skillfully and healthily as possible. And I was heavy into a research career doing my postdoc at Brown when I became pregnant. And then I had the baby and all my plans kind of hit the wall because I discovered that even though 
I had really set things up as, you know, I'm an ambitious, really future-oriented person and worked very, very hard to put myself in a position where I thought I could do all the things that felt important to me, work hard, be a good parent, be a thoughtful partner, and it all kind of fell apart. And I found myself commuting to work every day, just crying and really falling apart. And so I started to do what all nerdy people do, which is read everything I could get my hands on. And being an academic, I, I read popular press literature, and then I also read a lot of academic science and what I read in the popular press was pretty disheartening about working parenthood. And so when, I, but I found something that was a little bit more hope inducing in academic science, which suggested that it's not only about work family conflict, there's this other construct called work family enrichment. And that was really uh, reassuring to me that I didn't have to just fall prey to this tension that was really kind of cratering me inside. And that's where this book and my thinking came from. I started writing about it. And in 2014, when I just had two kids, I wrote a piece for the New York Times that went viral. And it turned out, I think a lot of people were feeling similarly to how I did, which is, you know, shouldn't there be a way that we can do this without waiting for the systems to update? And so that's where this new book, Work, Parent, Thrive, came from. So before we dive into the book, um, could you tell us a little bit more about your own personal life and how you spend your time? So how many kids you have? I know that you wear multiple hats. You're a clinical psychologist. I've partnered with you on an op-ed for the Washington Post. So you also do a lot of popular press writing. I believe you're still involved in academia. So let's set the stage first (laughs) with your own skin in the game here, because you clearly work in parent and we'll talk about whether or not you thrive. I think I thrive most days. But um, yeah, so I have three kids. They are currently ages five, nine, and 12. Um, And I really, I I mean, I don't want to sound too corny here, but I love parenting. I think they're so much fun. They bring smiles to my face most every day. And I just really get a kick out of being a parent. And then I have a small private practice. I specialize in marital therapy. I see patients two days a week in person. Um, and then once in a while, I'll kind of fit people in for virtual sessions if they're on my non-in-the-office days. And then I have faculty status at Brown University in the medical school. Currently, I used to do research, um, but now that I've gotten more involved in popular press writing, I mostly have a clinical role supervising interns um, who are studying for who have their PhDs and are working towards licensure. And then um, I also co-host a podcast called Psychologists Off the Clock, which is a podcast dedicated to bringing science-backed psychology ideas and practices to non-academic audiences. So I wear a lot of hats, but it is, you know, one of the things that I write about is, you know, knowing the science of how to help your roles help each other is actually one of the ways that I'm able to navigate uh, keeping all of those roles afloat and and most of the time enjoying myself. You know, I have I have hard days like everybody does, but okay, that that's a lot of hats to wear. So I, I have to ask, as someone who comes from an academic bra- background, which generally teaches us to like narrow, 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 <laughs> like what pushed you or pulled you to go broad with everything from writing a popular press book to hosting a podcast to doing everything else you just uh, mentioned there? Like what was the the thing that said, you know what, typically academics go this route, I'm going the other route? 
Yeah, I've never been somebody who only liked doing one thing. I think it's just kind of in my nature. I really enjoy wearing a lot of hats. Um, Even as a when I was in graduate school and my the program that I attended was very much in the research realm, I always saw myself as somebody who really loved research and was very passionate about science and who really has has the heart of a clinician. I just really like being in the therapy room with people and feeling that sense of impact. Um, and so I was probably kind of unusual even in my class for um, being somebody who really enjoyed both science and clinical practice. Most people in academia really love the research and they're stereotypically less interested in being in the clinical room. And most people who go the clinical route are not as interested in the science part. So I think it's probably just inherent to my personality. And I think I have a lot of anxious energy. So it's a really good way to feel like I can expend that energy in productive ways. My kids are lucky that I have a lot of professional hats because otherwise they'd be at the receiving end of all of my energy. So I want to um, dig a little bit deeper there because you mentioned that the mind or the drive of an intellectual, but then the heart of a clinician, is that something that you became aware of early? And is that something that you struggle to reconcile or does it feel natural? Because I do think that in not just in in therapy and academia, but in so many areas of life, we tend to kind of silo ourselves uh, in one direction, almost between those two extremes, right? Emotion, heart on the one side and mind, intellect on the other. Um, Yeah. Talk to us about kind of how you think about that dichotomy and how you straddle both those worlds or, or integrate them. I think I probably didn't have words for it. I actually have a very vivid memory of upon my graduation. So when I my PhD was conferred, my graduate advisor, who's wonderful, he's a marital therapy and academics. Um, he's a brilliant guy. His name is Mark Wisman, and his research is in marital therapy. And he uh, had a party for all of the graduates. And I remember he said something short about everybody. But the thing that he said was that I had this rare combination of of having the heart of a clinician and the mind of a researcher. And I remember being so proud and thinking like, I think that's it. I think that's both the blessing and the curse of me is that I feel kind of divided in a lot of ways, but also I see those two parts of myself as being very complementary. And I think honestly, that is a lot of where all the different pockets of my work kind of converge is that I think that oftentimes when we have these parts of ourselves, these parts of our lives, or even if you sort of zoom back and think about relationships between two people who are very different, we think about sort of the tension between the two or the conflict between the two, how they don't really go together. But I think most of the time, if you can almost convert the story into one of being complementary you actually can find a lot of benefits. So it's it's a little bit about a mindset shift and seeing those different sides of yourselves or, or those different roles, or if you have a partner who you really don't see eye to eye, seeing the ways that you don't see eye to eye as potentially very complementary, it really changes the way that you manage that tension, right? And, you know, if you even think about the Taoist symbol of yin and yang, it it is this really nice figure, uh, pictorial representation of this idea where we have these forces that we think about as opposing, but really they oppose each other in mutually beneficial ways. And so the more that we can think about our roles in this way or our relationships in this way, or even the different parts of ourselves in this way, the more we can capitalize on what 
is actually a surprising benefit, even though it can sometimes be uncomfortable. So I, I love that as someone who spent most of his academic career wrestling between the like science nerd self versus, in my case, the coaching like world where I wanted to apply things um, that really resonates. And it really is that tension because, you know, and this ties to your book a little bit because so much of it is that mindset and that expectation. And I'm wondering, like, you know, we all feel that tension to a degree. Um, but how big a role does like the culture and the cultural expectations, like, um, how big a role does that play in setting us down almost a, a path where we have um, uh, the wrong mindset on this stuff? I think it has a huge, a huge influence. I think the cultural narratives that we have about discomfort more generally are, are, are hard to ignore and they're, they're hard not to sort of have just become a part of what we think of as truth, right? We don't think we should have this discomfort. We don't think we should uh, have conflict with our partner. We don't think that we should um, have conflict between roles or tension between roles. And in fact, you know, one of the core tenets of my life is, is I draw, I practice in the therapy room and, and in my daily life, a, a kind of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. And inherent in acceptance and commitment therapy is that we just accept that tension and discomfort is a part of the human experience. So rather than fighting it, you sort of make space for it and allow it to provide really useful information. And in fact, what laboratory science shows is that when we fight natural discomfort, like uncomfortable emotions or you know, as I talk about role tension, you know, these sort of natural human experiences, what actually happens is, you know, that it's this famous quote from uh, Carl Jung, that which we resist persists and grows stronger. And so when we resist these natural human experiences, we actually find the opposite happening. We don't get rid of it. It actually grows bigger. And so what happens, I think, in that cultural messaging is that we're told that we shouldn't be feeling these things. And so we fight it and then we grow even more aggravated that we're feeling it. And I think what I, what I do want to make sure I emphasize is that, you know, part of it is really a system systems issue. You know, we have a lot of workplace situations that are very inflexible. We have social policy that's very antiquated and, you know, gender inequity and pay. And so these are real issues that I think, you know, we need to continue to push and push for more rapid and more humane reform. And at the same time, I think part of the issue that we face is this very human experience. And so that's where the cultural messaging can be very misleading. I loved what you, you talked about here. And maybe to bring it out for our listeners is everything you just talked about on wrestling with this kind of tension and uncertainty applies just as much in the parenting and the relationship and the world that you live as the athletic field, like everything you just talked about is how we navigate pain and discomfort when we're looking at running a marathon or what have you. And it's those same skills. And I just love that kind of uh, synergy there that it's it's all kind of the same thing to a degree. I think that athletics are such a good metaphor for what we feel emotionally. So as a psychologist, I often use sort of like the physical pain metaphors, but because, you know, if you're training for something, you want to pay attention to the pain and let it inform you. Do I need to rest? Do I need to see a doctor or do I need to push through? And if you don't pay attention and allow for it, it's really hard to be wise in your response to it. 
And so I think, you know, part of it is that we need to accept that pain is a part of the process and we need to pay attention, not so much attention that it's all we see, but like gather it as information. It's important information. A pain in your leg is important information. A pain, you know, in, in your, in your brain space and your emotional life is also important information. And we need to figure out what to do with it from, from sort of a, a, in a thoughtful way. All right. So I'm going to prompt you with a couple of things that are normally held in tension in the broader societal conversation on um, working and being in relationship and parenting. So for a while, it was all about work-life balance. And then it kind of shifted to work-life boundaries. You need to have boundaries. And what I'm hearing you say, and what is so clearly laid out in your book is another way to think about this is work-life harmony or work-life integration. So let's tackle kind of each, each, each one of those. So let's start with work-life balance. When I say that, what does that mean to you and, and what does that bring up? Well, so I, I think balance is a process, not an outcome. Uh, and I've heard you guys on your podcast. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. So I've heard you guys talk about process versus outcome. And I think most human uh, goals that we have, we do better when we focus on the process and the outcome. And so balance, when we see it as a, you can think about it like a yoga pose. You know, if you hold a pose, you're not done. It's the holding of the pose that is the balance that you're seeking. And at some point you have to come out of it and then you can enter back in. So balance isn't something you ever achieve and are done achieving. It's something that you're always sort of evolving into and moving along with. So that's what I think about is work-life balance. I think, for example, you know, for any parent as they're going through their child's developmental process, things are going to change in terms of what you're looking for, uh, in terms of how you're, how much investment of time you're going to give to parenting. And same thing goes with work. You know, we all have long careers, long lives to sort of figure out, you know, how are we going to approach work in our 20s versus our 50s is going to look very different. And so it, it's a process. And I think balance, you know, really looks different for everybody, but it's really about figuring out based on your situation, what's the balance day to day that you're going to procedurally aim for. All right, let's move on to boundaries. Okay. When I think about boundaries, I so I think integration is really important. It's, it's a both and, right? Integration of work and family is really important. And being able to use each role to enhance the other is very, very helpful. And so, you know, in my role as an academic, I actually think about, you know, the my child's perspective on things and the kinds of questions that they would ask. And I use that to enhance my academic work. In my parenting work, I certainly use a lot of ideas from psychology, but also from podcasting, like asking curious questions is such a useful skill as a parent. So there's these ways that they integrate in, in very, very helpful ways. And boundaries, I think about, about in terms of using each role to take a break from the other. And that's what I think is really important when we talk about burnout is that there's so few opportunities these days to really have, to really be unavailable to one role. And it is very depleting to never have a break. And what we know from psychological research is that one of the things that causes burnout is not ever being able to switch off. And so there's this concept that psychology researchers call psychological detachment that literally means just like turning fully off from one role. And it's really hard to do if we're always available, right? And so one of the boundaries that I really 
think is important to establish is to pick pockets of your day or of your week where you're fully unavailable to all to each of your most demanding roles so that you can recharge. And one of the things that I think is particularly helpful about work family uh, about the relationship between work and family is that it's like one of the few vestiges that can't be expunged by technology because at times you're going to have to be available to your kids. And if you're distracted by your phone, they are going to call you out for it as well they should. And so it would behoove you as a worker to put down your phone and be unavailable on the Slack channel or to any urgent messages from your colleagues because you'll return to it later with more juice in your battery. And this is what research unequivocally shows. There's this really cool study that I really love to cite that followed Israeli army reservists at one particular company. A portion of them was called to active duty and a portion of them stayed working the entire time. And what they found was that the folks who were called into active duty, who went to war, had less work burnout when they returned. And it's because they were able to access this important ingredient of psychological detachment, right? They went to war, so they were not available for their jobs. And I think we need to be more deliberate about allowing the tension between our roles to helpfully push us to psychologically detach, both from parenting and from work in turn. Yeah, so that's that's such a good point. And it's something that I experience all the time. Well, not all the time. I'm getting better at it. But when I feel my worst or when I feel burnout is approaching, it is because there is just total enmeshment of all these things. So when I'm playing with my kid, I am trying not to be on my phone, but I'm either thinking about it or I'm actually writing something on Twitter. And when I'm doing work, I've got my kid in the room and I'm kind of playing with him so I can't focus on work. Um, When I am writing, I'm also like going through email, even within just the context of work. I think that nothing is more soul sucking than it's really multitasking at the end of the day. And you can multitask when you're working, but you can also, what I'm hearing you say is multitask between roles. And sometimes you have to, but the more that you can have these clear times and spaces for certain roles while still having them inform each other, the better off you'll be. Is that is that the right read on it? That's 100% the right read. And I think what is helpful in looking to the science is that we what keeps us working at each of our roles at the same time and doing all that multitasking is this feeling like, I won't get it done or I won't get it done well if I don't keep working. And what the science suggests is exactly the opposite. You will do better as a parent if you turn off parenting and go to work. You will do better as a worker if you turn off work when you go to parent. You'll come back to each with more energy and more creativity, more so more new ideas, more uh, sustainability over time. And so I think that can really motivate us to say, okay, like I am not available for email and actually this will be good because tomorrow I'll come back with a fresher mind that is ready to tackle some of the more challenging tasks that we're faced with. Um, I mean, even creativity research, you know, there's uh, research on this process of incubation, like when we step away from consciously thinking about a problem and we're much more, it's like the shower effect, right? You have a fight with your partner and you're in the shower and you think of like the perfect comeback that you wish that you would have come up with. And it's because you weren't, you're no longer thinking about it. You're no longer sort of focused on the issue. It's your default mode network getting into action. This is a part of your brain system that only engages when you're not actively thinking about something. And so, for example, if you're really struggling with a work problem, the best thing that you can do is go parent and turn it off and tell yourself, I'll come back to this tomorrow. 
I'll try to have some time to rest from thinking about it. And that actually is a very effective strategy. And so knowing some of those tools, knowing some of that science can help to motivate you and therefore can reduce some of the risk for burnout. So I'm wondering, hearing this, it's important to almost switch roles, turn off and on, depending on what you're going after. The question it gets at to me is like, that really makes it seem like it's important to almost have a variety of roles that that you can take up. So where my mind goes to is if you're that that kid or that adult who is like all in on a sport or an academic pursuit and doesn't think of anything else, it's almost like you're setting yourself up to have an inability to turn that role off and go somewhere else. Yeah, and I think the research supports that not only for long-term sustainability of excellence in any one role, right? This this is, you know, the most prolific people have full lives, right? And they stay in it over time because they don't burn themselves out. Um, and then there's just like the happiness factor. We're happier when we have a lot of different roles, a lot of different areas of our life, because there's no possibility for just one role. You know, it's the same thing if you think about marriage, like one relationship cannot fulfill all of your relationship needs. There's just no way. It's unrealistic. And the the unfortunate truth is like having many roles means that you'll have tension between roles, but having only one role means you'll burn out and you won't have the kind of creativity that somebody that has a fuller, more diverse life has. And so, you know, there's opportunity costs, and I don't even necessarily think that one should never uh, consider only having one role. I mean, maybe that would work for, for some people, but I think in general, the science suggests that a more diverse life is better for your excellence in your various roles and also for your overall happiness. All right. So let's get down to where the rubber meets the road here. Something that often comes up with my executive coaching clients and particularly the women that I work with who are in leadership positions. So either quite high up at large endemic companies or founders or co-founders of new companies is this tension between I want to be there for my young child's rehearsal, soccer game, you name it. And I feel like this is a time of my life where I need to go all in on my career. I'm starting a company. My company is about to IPO. I was just named CEO and I feel like I'm in over my head. Yeah. How do you approach that sort of, um, I don't even want to call it a problem. It's not, I guess that tension. and, And the thing that I often hear is feelings of guilt associated with that. Yeah. Guilt is, I I think guilt is like the ticket to ride in modern parenthood. It's so pervasive. And guilt in and of itself is not the problem. Guilt is an emotion. And like all emotions, right, you're talking to psychologists, so I think no emotion is bad. But the science really supports this truth, right? All emotions are like pain in your leg, informative. In the case of guilt, guilt is an emotion that prompts us to take care of our relationships, right? It keeps us from engaging in behaviors that are harmful to the people and the relationships that we care about. So it's actually quite a useful emotion. But the problem is is that sometimes we imagine that we shouldn't feel guilty, right? That we shouldn't feel something that's very natural. And also that we're not sort of looking at it for the information that it's offering in a very thoughtful way, right? So you're a parent and you're, in, in the case of your clients, you're a parent, you care very much about being there for your young child, you're also somebody who is doing something very important in your professional life and that you don't want to sort of harm that 
uh, outlet, that uh, role that is very critical to, to your identity, but also probably, you know, supports a lot of the colleagues and employees that you have. And so guilt is going to just be a part of that process. So the most useful thing, I think, is to allow guilt to, to in, to notice it, to be mindful, to accept it, and then to get curious about your values, right? So this is a really core part of acceptance and commitment therapy is clarifying your values. What's important to me in this moment in time? And the reality is you're going to say both, right? I both want to be a good parent and a, and a good worker. And so I think the answer is... It, there's a lot of layers to the answer, and it really is obviously going to depend for each person. But I think, you know, given that you have high demands at work, what is the best that you can do for your child? Given that you have a young child, what is the best that you can do for your work? And so getting curious about what that looks like in this phase of life, recognizing that it's time limited and recognizing that, you know, there are certain things that are more important and certain things that are less important. So, for example, if you have a young child, you might ask yourself, what when I look back on this time 10 years from now, what do I definitely not want to miss out on? And what's kind of okay for me to miss out on? So this is like the zooming out and using your future self to get, help yourself get perspective on the present moment. This is a very common exercise in acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, and similarly, you can even look to other working parents and say, you know, in the ways that they showed up in their work life and their parenting life, what are uh values that they're embodying, ways of being that I really admire, and to use that to inform. The other thing that I think is really helpful is to learn a little bit about the social science of parenting. I think part of why we get so guilty in parenthood is we have this idea that we're supposed to be there for our kids all the time. And this isn't one of these totally pervasive cultural messages that drives me absolutely bananas because humans are not wired to parent alone. We are wired to parent in groups. We are wired to have help because raising human children is very taxing. And so, you know, evolutionarily speaking, we used to raise children in, in small groups, you know, with kin, and we don't live like that anymore. But we have something that is very similar, which is we have the ability to delegate out. And obviously, there are all sorts of um, issues with quality and cost of childcare. But it is not a bad thing to have help in raising your kids. It's actually good for them. And it's good for you. It's good for your kids to learn from other caregivers. It's good for them to grow independence. It's good for them not to have you swoop in and solve all of their problems. It's good for you to feel supported. It's good for you to earn a salary to support your children. It's good for you to model for them what it is to make contributions out in the world. And so that's a part of the messaging that I think can help us tolerate the guilt. So it's sort of a combination of recognizing the value of uh, having both of those roles and how it benefits both our work and our kids, and then also clarifying for ourselves what are the most important things that we really want to be able to show up for, given our constraints. You know, one thing that I'll often um, discuss with with clients in this situation, well, there's a lot of comparison going on too, that like all the other moms are showing up for their kids everything. And I'll say that there is being what you perceive to be a good parent now acutely for your three-year-old, your four-year-old, but then there's also your four-year-old that's going to be 15 one day and might then look up to mom and say, whoa, mom was the first partner at this firm, if that's what mom values, or the CEO, or did this great thing, and that parenting is longitudinal, 
And sometimes, yeah, sitting there and watching your three-year-old is the thing that is alignment with your values. But if you feel like you're being guilted into it, then that's probably not the reason to do it. And then my other question is, why is it in my coaching practice, and my guess is if we were to ask a bunch of other coaches and therapists, the women that come with this guilt, and there's a lot of selection bias for the people that I work with. So they tend to be pretty progressive, crunchy, including the men. Yet men just don't bring this up. Is that purely societal? Like what, what's your best guess as to what's going on there? Wait, so I want to answer that question, but first I just want to comment yeah. on one thing that you said, which is a recommendation basically to unhook from the social judgments and to pay more attention to what you and your child think. So to worry less about what your neighbor or or your parent down the street thinks and more about what you what matters to you and your child. And I think that's a really good recommendation because it's so easy to worry about what other parents or caregivers might think in judgment of us. And it's far more important to worry about what you think and what your child might think. So I love that. And I think the judgment goes both ways. My guess is like the stay-at-home mom or dad at times judges themselves and thinks, oh, I ought to be working and contributing. And the working parent is probably judging themselves saying, oh, I ought to be spending more time with my child. And as you pointed out, when you look at the literature, neither of those is right or wrong. They both just are. Yeah. And and the human mind is built to judge. Like there's no avoiding judgment. And so again, that's one of these uh, ideas that we get so hooked on. Like, oh, if I could only do it well enough, then I won't be judged or, you know, feel that sense of criticism coming from other people. But unfortunately, there's just no avoiding it. Just as your mind judges, other people's minds are going to judge. And so it's far less important to eradicate judgment because you're not going to get there. And far more important to figure out, you know, again, given your life constraints, what what matters most and what is most realistically possible and satisfying for you. So I I think that that's um, a really important point that we all need to remind ourselves about repeatedly because judgments, you know, fearing judgment is natural, right? That's again, you know, we're wired to sort of protect our social connections. Um, But it's, it has diminishing returns of utility. (laughs) Yeah. All right. My second question, the, maybe the tough one, or maybe the easy one, is it all just cultural bias in years of entrenched stereotype? Yeah. As to why it tends to be women that that feel the squeeze more than men in this particular instance. I think that culture and and you know the, the ways that girls are raised versus the ways that boys are raised has a lot to do with it and and there's certainly a lot of evidence showing that girls are raised to prioritize relationships and serving others, being in service of others a lot more than little boys are. I think there is some evidence from animal studies and up through, you know, human social studies that suggests that, you know, some of it is our wiring. Like women, you know, I think this is potentially thorny territory to walk into, but that women are more biologically engineered to be more invested in, in the maternal role. And that doesn't mean that all women are or that all women should right? This needs to be an individual choice. And I think that's where the freedom that, you know, women have worked so hard for comes in. Like, you know, women need to be allowed to make that choice to be more invested in their career. And if women choose not to, they need to be free with it. And, you know, as much as we can, 
loosen the hold of the judgment, free to do that. There's really interesting research that I'm diving into for uh, a next book that I'm working on about the kibbutz experiment. So for folks who have never heard of it, so kibbutzim were these small agricultural societies that were developed around the turn of the 19th century in Israel. And they were uh, designed according to uh, socialist ideals. And so part of what they tried to do is to equalize things between men and women, that men and women could both be parents and work. And part of how they tried to do that was they reared children communally in these children's houses. And it's this very cool, basically 100-year experiment where they looked at, it wasn't engineered as an experiment. They were actually trying to live this way, but they did a lot of research on it. And what they found ultimately is that the children's houses were dismantled because moms were really dissatisfied with it. And I think it's just an example of, you know, even if you try to equalize things, in some ways, you know, mothers might be less satisfied. And I take myself as an example. I, in theory, would have been fine working full time and not, you know, I, before I became a mom, I thought it would be fine. And then it turned out I was intensely uncomfortable. I, I felt real. And my husband went back to work after we had our first kid. No problem. So, yes, part of it might have been our upbringing and part of it might be our biology. It's, it's pretty hard to disentangle those. I think if Steve and I were left alone with the kids in the house, Hillary and Caitlin would be very dissatisfied. (laughs) (laughs) There would be some interesting experiments. Maybe, you know, Brad's kid would probably end up lifting a ton of weight. Mine would be stuck on a treadmill for far too long. Um, Apples and trees. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, so taking going from one thorny issue, I want I I couldn't help. Uh, we can't end this conversation bes- before we touch on youth sports culture, because so much of your book, as I'm reading that, you know, the over-involved parent, all the things that you talked about, role clarity and that tension and that feeling of guilt, is expressed in youth sports. Yeah. Um, so one of the, uh, most kind of enlightening and fearful experiences of my life is my, my wife is elementary school teacher. So we get invited to all of her, her students, you know, soccer games and football games. And they were like five or six years old. She taught first grade. And I remember saying, oh, okay, I'll go with you. And I'm at this like six year old soccer game. And, and the parents are going nuts as if it's like, this, <laughs> you know, the world cup. And I'd been in sports all my life, so I was kind of expecting something similar, but it was just, it just blew me away. So from everything you've kind of learned in your book or in your research and your writing and all that stuff, like, how do we change, you know, the culture in youth sports? And I know I'm, I'm throwing a, a giant you know, question at you. But what are some like tangible things that maybe a parent is listening who feels that tension on like, well, I want my kid to have their opportunity. I want my child to get the college scholarship or have this X, Y, and Z that is <laughs> promised. Like, how does that parent deal with that tension maybe a little bit better? Yeah. Well, I mean, statistics show your pro- your child will probably not get that scholarship. So it might be better to spend your energy elsewhere. That's kind of point one. I mean, and point two is, you know, what are you doing it for, right? So it it could be the scholarship, but then what, right? If your child is working their butt off to get to the college and then they're going to have to work their butt off to get to the job and they're doing it because they're afraid they're going to miss out on opportunities, it's sort of like your entire life is a dress rehearsal, but for what? 
right? You're spending your entire life working to get to the next thing, but you're kind of missing out on what's in front of you. So I think that more present-oriented question is, and sort of asking yourself, you know, if it's this year that matters, you know, how do I want to spend it with my child? What do I want to support my child in doing? And then there's, you know, the awareness of the the costs of pushing our kids too much. And I've heard you guys talk about this on the podcast, that there's this very important theory called self-determination theory that suggests that the more we push our kids, the less intrinsically motivated they are. And so when we push our kids to, you know, perform in sports in a particular way that, that feels very pressurized, that feels very outcome oriented, we really reduce their ability to connect into why they want to do it. And what we know from studies of people who are enormously successful is that intrinsic motivation, that self-drive to care about something for because you care about it, not because somebody else cares about it for you, is far more important. And so I think, you know, recognizing the, the costs of pushing and on being focused on these outcomes that are really far down the road is, is an important wake-up call. And it is hard when everybody else is drinking the Kool-Aid, right? You see all the other, like I know lots of parents who have their kids signed up for so many things and it makes me uncomfortable. I worry, you know, am I letting all these opportunities pass my kids by? Like, the, you know, all the Russian math that people are doing and the uh, piano that lessons that they started at age five, as well as the sports, it, it, it can feel like you're losing the race unless you participate. But again, you know, remember, it is far less important what the parents next to you are doing and far more important to clarify what's important to you and your family. And I will say, you know, my kids do plenty of sports. So maybe, you know, I drank drink the Kool-Aid a little bit, but I and I'm the assistant coach of my kindergartner soccer team. And it is so fun and funny and they're terrible. And so, you know, just get out there and enjoy it because that'll help you have a good relationship with your kids. And then when they get interested in whatever they're interested in, you know, collecting rocks or chess or whatever, get behind that because ultimately them finding their own passion is so much more important than you pushing a particular outcome. I, I love that advice. Thanks for um, giving that so clearly. And I can't help but think that so much of this is driven or a large part of this is driven is because we now live in a world where that comparison game is is like impossible like it used to i think of it i don't know decades ago where when i was getting started in sport all i knew was well i'm the fastest in this little class which was like 20 people but now it's like you your parents everybody knows how you stack up against anybody anywhere and that kind of overwhelming information has kind of set us all down this or probably made us feel that more of that uncertainty, more of that tension, which probably pushes us more into maybe these behaviors that don't align with the things that you just talked about in terms of motivation and self-determination theory and and so on. A hundred percent. And I will share too that he'll hate that I shared this, but my 12-year-old plays on a travel soccer team and he's not the best and he gets benched a lot and it's painful for him. And so as, as a parent, I have a choice in in sort of how I respond to that. Knowing the science, again, I, I sound like such a geek on here, but knowing the science, 
what I focus on with him is, okay, you know, what is it that you want and how hard do you want to work to get it? Because that makes the difference, right? Where you start is not where you end and where you end is so much more determined by what you decide you want to put into it. Not, I mean, size has a lot to do with it. He's a small guy. So there are certain limitations in what he can do for the time being, but effort matters so much and the effort has to come from him. It just does, right? There's nothing I can do out on the field when he's playing. And if he hasn't practiced and really thought about the strategy and if he isn't looking at the field, there's nothing that I can do to help him. So it's it's up to him at the end of the day and I can support him as much as I can. And And reminding him that failure is okay. Like it's okay to fall on your face and it's okay to be embarrassed as long as you're learning from it, as long as you don't stop trying because of it. Like that's the important message that we need to be sending our kids. All right. So I'm going to ask um, a funny question because I think that any parent that's listening will find this resonant, but the universal phenomenon of when you're with your kid, particularly your young kids. So let's say parent of kids under five, at times you want nothing more than to not have to be sitting there with your young kid. But then the minute that you're not with your young kid, so you're out on that date with your partner or you're reading a book, all you can do is think about how wonderful your little kid is. What's going on there? Have you experienced that? Uh, just this past weekend, yes. My five-year-old uh, who is- And it's young kids. I want to be clear. Yes. I, I don't want to yeah. sound like a terrible dad, but like, <laughs> my, like my four-year-old, like, you know, we can only do so many meltdowns when the Lego breaks and it's like, oh my God, like I'm starting to look at the clock for like my, the handoff. Yeah. But then the minute that the handoff happens, I'm like looking over my shoulder, like, what's Caitlin doing with Theo? Like, I kind of want to <laughs> play with him. Oh, isn't he so cute over there? <laughs> yeah. So what's going on with that? Yeah, I think it's biological wiring of parent, right? We're wired to pay attention to our kids, but they are so annoying. Like that is like, I think my kids are yes. the most amazing creatures in the world and they are freaking annoying. <laughs> and my youngest was, he was insisting that I, not insisting because I can always say no, but he asked if I would play soccer with him. And then he asked if I would hold the football while he practiced his kicks. And he said to me, aren't you having so much fun? And I'm just thinking, no, I'm not. I would much rather be sitting and reading a book. But then when I sit and read a book and I think, oh, wouldn't it be nice if he was snuggling beside me? But of course, as soon as he's snuggling beside me, I'm like, oh, I just want some space. <laughs> so I think it's partly that, you know, the human brain is, you know, often wired to want what we don't have in the moment. We're uh, wired to sort of see the good in motivating to get something different, something more. Um, this is, you know, part of what keeps us moving forward. And then I think a part of it really is parenting. Brad, as you're noting, this is so much more true with our younger kids. And when my kids were really, really young, I had a very hard time being physically apart from them, which was, you know, in some ways so silly, right? They were fine and I was fine, but it was like physically uncomfortable for me. And so I think that's one of these instances where it's useful to just recognize like our minds are wired to protect our young children. And when they're close to us, we feel more comfortable and yet they're so annoying. So <laughs> there's a part of us that wants to run away. But when we're apart, there's this sort of urgency to kind of get back into physical proximity with them. And I think it's totally normal. But again, remembering that time away is good for everybody involved. And so it becomes a little bit of a mindfulness practice of bringing yourself back to the present moment where you're at with your partner out on a date or doing work or going for a workout and trying to get as much of that as you can by saying, 
you know, it's okay for me to miss them. That's just normal. But also let me bring myself back to the present moment and what I'm doing so that when I'm back together with them, I'll have a longer fuse and not get so fed up with them as quickly as I otherwise would. (laughs) All right. I've got one more very um, concrete question from a a parenting scenario, and I'm asking for a friend here. So imagine (laughs) that your five-year-old is doing Legos because your five-year-old's super into Legos and it's before school in the morning and a Lego breaks and your five-year-old just melts down with true sadness, like really sad. And you want to let your five-year-old feel those feelings and that sadness because in that moment, it's a big deal that the Lego broke. But then that sadness starts to spiral and then it just becomes pouting and moping And on the one hand, you were raised to just repress all that shit. Like, it's just a Lego, forget about it, go to school, you're a boy, be happy. So you don't want to do that. You don't want to pass that on. So you want to let him feel his feelings, but you also have to get him out the door to school. And the Lego that broke, it's not like a 100-piece Lego. It's like a 10-piece little thing. And now your kid is telling you, as five-year-olds do, that you need to rebuild it. But when you ask them how, they don't remember how it was. So now you need to rebuild something that you don't remember how it was. They don't remember how it was. How do you navigate letting them feel the feelings, not washing over what for a four or five-year-old is really sad with also just getting on with the day? Brad, this is a very specific scenario. (laughs) I love it. It's a great one. And I'm sure many people will resonate with it. Um, I always think of it as like the one-two punch. First you validate and then you get into, so what now, right? So unlike when we were kids, when we're encouraged to repress all the feelings, you say it makes sense that you're sad. You worked really hard on it. And so of course you're really disappointed. It's super frustrating. I get frustrated too. So, you know, join them, right? I, I felt that way. I totally get it. You have a right to feel this way. So this is sort of the classic validation. And then you say, I know you're still upset, but we have to get on with our day. With younger kids, multiple choice options are really helpful, right? So we can leave it here and come back to it later. We can put it in the car so that it's, you know, there with you uh, when I pick you up. You can put it in your lunchbox so that in the middle of the day, you can, you're not allowed to play with it at school, but you can take a peek at it and think creatively. Or we can leave it here. You can draw a picture at school. Right. I'm throwing out lots of different options, but like, or we can, you know, junk it and start over and make something even cooler. Which one do you want to do? And this gets to, you know, within the self-determination theory, the idea of agency, and you're also supporting their competency and you're connecting in with them, right? So you're giving them options. You're allowing them to choose. And you can even, you can even invite them if they're creative. Is there another option that you think would be helpful? Because we do have to get out of the house. And you can say, we, we have about two minutes, two minutes to pick. And if you don't pick, we're just going to you know, have to pick later, right? So that, that can be another option where you really urge them along. And then there's, okay, so that's you know, step two. Then there's the reality that most kids are not going to, despite how skillful you are in validating and giving them some options of what to do, they're not just going to immediately get over it. And then it becomes a process of you tolerating the fact that they're grumpy and that you got to stuff their feet into their shoes and get out the door. And that I think is a place where many parents get very hard on themselves. Like I have to make my kid feel better. I can't leave them, take, bring them to school with tears all over their face. And I would just have lots of self-compassion for yourself. It's uncomfortable and it is okay. It is normal. This is a part of parenting. 
Later on, I think it can be useful, again, depending on the age of your kid. If they're mature enough, you can problem solve. Hey, next time that happens, you know, when we have to get out the door and, and you're really upset, how do you want to handle it, right? And then you can almost do some shared problem solving together. This is fits under the collaborative problem solving idea that it's an evidence-based treatment for parents. So what you're saying is that the right answer is not to promise them a chocolate chip Cliff Kids bar <laughs> in the car? <laughs> Well, um, not that is one of your options. I support your agency in picking it. (laughs) That is the external or the extrinsic hammer. Yeah. I often find myself giving my kids food to distract them. I think it's pretty normal. But I think as much as you can sort of stay away from these um, external, you know, I have so many parents that I see that, you know, reward their kids like for getting a shot by going shopping for a toy. And I think that is understandable. And as much as you can, this is just sort of a bit of science-backed parenting advice. Try not to do that. Try and That's the hardest tension that I feel is a, is a parent of a young kid is knowing that, knowing that, knowing that science, probably not as well as you, but knowing it well, but then being at the CVS when my kid gets his COVID shot and like, he's so brave and he asked me for a stuffy and I can't say no. I mean, I'm sure that like, maybe I ought to, or I ought to divert. Um, so I just think of it like, keep be in mind of that and don't always reward, yeah. but also don't be so dogmatic about it that like I treat my child like a lab rat. Yes, exactly. And that every time they do something hard, they expect you to, you know, do the parenting version of buying them off. <laughs> That's where you don't want to go. You want, you want them. I, I think it's okay. Like, you know, you, you don't have to see it as a bribe every time you give your kid a treat for doing something hard. But the more that it's what we call intermittent reinforcement, not, they don't just expect it, but it's sort of random. And like once in a while, you're like, oh, I was just so proud of you. Hey, let's go out and celebrate tonight. That's a really great thing to do. It's more exactly as you were saying, Brad, that you don't want it to be an every time thing where the expectation is every time they do something uncomfortable that they get a reward. Because again, that reduces intrinsic motivation. So I love this discussion because for a brief time during the COVID pandemic, I had to help my wife out in her elementary school, which was like eye-opening on all this stuff. And I, I definitely saw the value and learned the value of the multiple choice questions, right? Yeah. And what I what I loved is like after a while, I, I got to see like, oh, you're they have an option and you're giving them agency, but you're really kind of weighing the option towards like option B and just like, yeah, that's how you do it. Um, But then the the other point that just kind of resonated or just that I was reminded of during your conversation is she was also like, she's, she has a, a bag of gummy worms and she's like, these are your break glass, use the worms. Like, I know it's not good for intrinsic motivation, but every once in a while you got to pull out the gummy worms and it's the only thing that will solve the problem. Totally. I mean, when my kids have been injured, you know, in some cases severely, you know, a popsicle is somehow the most healing thing that you can offer. And I think, again, it's okay, you know, when done flexibly. It's, again, just sort of staying away from the dogmatic reinforcers like that. Uh, Absolutely. So one thing I wanted uh, to get to before we let you go is um, in the book, you talk a lot about the value of boredom. And allowing your kids to explore that and even yourself. So I I think boredom is something that we have kind of replaced with scrolling on our phones. So I'd just love to hear maybe you talk about a little bit um, the value of boredom, especially with kids. Yeah, well, 
I think nobody who has a phone, which is, you know, most people listening to this podcast, <laughs> is going to be surprised that we don't get as much opportunity to practice being bored as pre-phone era. And, you know, on the one hand, it's nice because being bored is unpleasant, but we lose something, right? Boredom is where creativity comes. It's, you know, our, when we are bored, our mind naturally wanders over to things that are more interesting to us. And so it's an opportunity often to get really creative, to think in new ways, to, um, you know, figure out what you're excited about, to practice being still, right? Which is an important part of our burnout culture, that we don't know how to sort of be still and sort of center ourselves. And I think in the day and age that we live, it's the only way that we're going to give our kids a chance to practice this important skill of learning how to be bored and how to take advantage of being bored is by being really deliberate about it because it's so easy to have them never be bored, right? And it's so uncomfortable when they're bored because they get so whiny and they want your attention and they want you to entertain them. And so you do have to be quite deliberate about it. And I'll share some of the practices that I have, the main one being that I have an enforced, I, I sound like such a drill sergeant with my kids, but I swear we have a very lovely relationship. <laughs> but uh, when we are home for full days, we have an enforced rest time. And during that rest time, they're not allowed to have any screens. They can read a book, they can draw, they can stare at a wall, they have to stay in their own rooms. And they have to leave me alone because that's usually when I'm doing work. So I take my work break, my parenting break and do work during their rest time. And they take an activity break and, and engage in some deliberate boredom. And they know it, they expect it, and they know that I think it's awesome. So when they complain that they're bored, I say, oh, that's great. <laughs> What'd you do? Like, what did you think about? You know, what questions came up? What, what do you, you know, what sort of novel thoughts that you hadn't been thinking before uh, arose in your mind? And so I think changing the script that we each have around boredom and, and growing some more deliberate practices to enforce the opportunities to be quiet with ourselves in this sort of unstimulated way is a really important, healthy psychological practice. Um, and it is uncomfortable and you, you will get pushback from your kids if you haven't already started it. But I think it's worth uh, seeing what you can do. And you can start with, you know, smaller, less regimented ways than I do. But I think it's, it's a really undervalued uh, experience of just kind of being a little bit bored for a few minutes. And I encourage everybody, like if you're standing in line waiting for whatever to get to the ATM or to order your bagels or whatever, put your phone away and, and just be bored a little bit, you know, S sit inside of yourself or before you get out of your car to go pick up your kids or at the end of your workday, sit in your car without the radio, turn it off. Don't be on your phone calling somebody and just sit quietly and see how it feels to kind of have no stimulation. I think incorporating pockets of those experiences, you know, that are sort of like, I'm kind of bored, I'm understimulated, and just practicing it is such a good skill. All right, last question. Um, what are the biggest challenges or the biggest challenge that you're facing right now, um, biggest tension, we can call it, in terms of relationship, be it with partner, friends, your children, no one has it all figured out, you come very close um, but what are what are the sticking points for you that you are having to actively focus on right now? Um, I write about this a bit in my book, but the hardest role tension that I've experienced is actually with my aging parents and my siblings that live across the country. I have so I start the book with a story of me 
uh, sitting in the airport. My sister had just had a baby. So I live in Boston and that my family of origin all lives in California. My sister had just had a baby. So she was in the hospital and my father was in the hospital um, with stage four cancer. And so I had really carefully decided to take a week off of work. And, you know, that was okay. You know, I had gotten my mother-in-law to fly out from Colorado to stay with my young kids who were then, you know, ages two, five, and nine, or almost nine. And my husband had a new job and it was really stressful. And then when I was out there, my father was released from the hospital into hospice. And the day before I was set to come back to Boston, he went into a coma. And so I had this really difficult decision before me of like, which role do I prioritize? You know, my working parent self devoted to my kids and my job and my husband's, my husband and his job, or do I put first my, my father who, you know, for me was my hero. And I, he has since passed away. He passed away the day after that. But, um, I think that is a tension that I continually don't know what to do with because, you know, when my mom now has a health scare, my siblings need assistance and they're so far away. It's really, really hard for me to show up as a good daughter and sister because I have so many demands here. I feel like uh, I've figured out things in my working parent life pretty well. I've been fortunate. I have a lot of flexibility. I have a supportive partner. I'm I'm really lucky in many ways, but that is one I I really continue to struggle with. How about you guys? Thanks for sharing all of that. Yeah, sure. I'm curious what what you guys struggle with. Well, oh, how long do you have? <laughs> yeah, can this be a therapy session? <laughs> right. Name name the domain. <laughs> Is it so so Brad, for you, you have young kids. Do you struggle with the tension be, well, let me ask that in an open-ended way. What which ones do you struggle with? In in terms of parenting? Between tension between roles, what's the hardest balance for you? What's the hardest one to sort of uh, figure out? How do I how do I decide what priority priority on a given day each role takes? I think that it's it's more close friends and family members other than my nuclear family. Like you, I'm really fortunate to have just an incredible supportive partner who has her own career and drive and. Um, also very fortunate to have come across folks like you that led us to pick up and move to a smaller town where we could be more autonomous. And um, when it's just like the nuclear family, things here are pretty good. I mean, am I on my phone after dinner more than I want to be? Yes, but not as much as I used to be. These are small things. Uh, I think for me, it's much more around feeling guilt with family of origin stuff as well as certain friendships that um, tend to maybe, at least I perceive that I don't give them my all because I know how much I could give, but there's just only so much that you can give to. And I think right now in my life, that is really quite highly focused on my nuclear family, my work, and then my local community and neighborhood. And I think that's also something that's unique is we move to this small neighborhood in Asheville that has no through traffic with all these great families. And I think that I probably spend a lot more time connecting with people here than I do maybe old friends from undergraduate school or even thereafter. And that's tough. And I think that I, I'm just really drawn to this idea of like local community 
But sometimes I feel guilty because I think I probably overemphasize on that and, and de-emphasize elsewhere. Um, so that's probably the biggest challenge. And then stuff with my parents just haven't been great for a long time. And that's an ongoing thing. Yeah. I think that's hard. That's sort of, I think, an area that gets under discussed is how hard it is to be an adult child with aging parents. I'm not sure if that's exactly what you're talking about, but, you know, it it can feel like you should be doing more and it can feel impossible to do the more that you would like to be doing. Steve, how about you? Um, You know, Brad knows this, but we we actually connect on the, the... the role and the aging parents. So we're in actually similar situations there. So I'd say that creates a lot of that tension. Um, In other aspects of my life, I'm actually kind of opposite of Brad is that I probably, my local kind of community, we moved as well about a year and a half ago or so. My local community, I'm not as connected with, but I'm really connected with friends from you know, years back and all that have kind of stayed the same. So I'm really good in that endeavor, but really horrible at, you know, people who live within, I don't know, a, a 10 mile radius or whatever it is. Really? So I, I'm kind of the opposite there. And then I don't know. I think the other, the, if we're talking about roles and role clarity, one of the things that I think I'm pretty good at, but has really created a lot of tension in the past year is I made a a big jump from writing kind of as the side gig and like everything that Brad and I do is the side gig to the main gig. And my main gig for all my entire adult life and actually even my upbringing was all in running or coaching runners and really kind of put that to the, from the huge role to the like very small role where I dabble in that. So that took a lot of, I think, getting used to an acceptance and going through some of those phases that you talked about and some of that kind of tension you talked about, because it is kind of like, well, you know, I'm I'm known for this thing over over here, but I'm just going to like minimize it to a great degree and try this thing over here. And that always creates some of that uncertainty and stress that we talked about. Yeah, I think that's such a great point that it's not just role tension between work and non-work life domains. It's also often the case that we have like role tension in these like more specific pockets within each role. Like as a parent, you may have tension between your relationship, between the effort that you put into a relationship with one child versus another or at work, as you're saying, you know, if you're trying to build up one and you're letting another one go, then you might feel like you're some discomfort around that. And I think that is a really difficult transition point do you guys, so you guys stay in touch via the podcast. Do you live in the same area? No. no. So How I'm did in, you meet? Um, t- well, two things. First, we we stay in touch because Brad calls me about 50 times a day. So um, Brad Brad's the one who's really good at the connection piece here. Um, but we oh, wait, met. But I thought he said that he's only good with the local people, except for Steve. Except for me. That's <laughs> why I feel so exception. Yeah, I feel everybody so wants Steve. But well, the reason I plug Steve's book so hard is we need to get him the income to just move to Asheville, and leave everything behind. <laughs> Brad, Brad is also trying to. Yeah, that's so, awfully. So we have our own tension there.
there. It's it's the tension behind Brad trying to convince my wife to move to North Carolina. Uh, I think Hillary would move. I think it's you, Steve. You always blame Hillary. I, but I'm not in charge. I'm not blaming her. I'm just saying she she gets the decision on this one. Um, so we met. So years ago, Brad interviewed me for a story on out in outside. Um, that was on, I, I forget what it was even on. It was like coaching or taking a scientific approach to coaching. There you go. So we just, you know, he interviewed me, but then we talked for like an hour and just nerded out like we do now. And then we just kind of kept in touch over email and some conversations and all that stuff. Because again, Brad's really good at that. Um, and then one day he just sent me an email and said, Hey, we, I know we've had a lot of conversations around performance and burnout and all these things. I'm really thinking about writing a book on this. Here are some thoughts and an outline. Could you give me your thoughts? And I was like, Oh, great. Like I've never met this guy, but we're, we're close enough where we can have a conversation on this. And I open, open the email, the attachment, read the, his outline and then I immediately send them back like 50 pages of notes on <laughs> a similar, like similar stuff. And that's how we actually started both our friendship and our collaboration on uh, the so book cool. that became Peak Performance. That is so cool. Wow. I distinctly remember we were living at the time in San Francisco and we had sold the book before I'd met Steve in person. And he finally flew in for like a weekend to really finalize the outline before we started writing. And my partner, Caitlin, like gave me like a hug and a pat on the back as like I like walked to the bar to pick up this person that I had been <laughs> online dating and agreed to publishing Mary. And Caitlin's like, I hope you like them. Um, and I don't know, almost 10 years later, here we are. But anyways, uh, we are going that to so cut this before Yael uh, interrogates us more. But um, this <laughs> is a nosy Yael. psychologist. <laughs> this is Yael Schoenbrun. Her book is Work, Parent, Thrive, 12 Science-Backed Strategies to Ditch Guilt, Manage Overwhelm, and Grow Connection When Everything Feels Like Too Much. We will include a link in the show notes. Um I could not recommend this book more highly. I learned a lot from it as y'all just had the privilege to listen to. Yael is just so wise and thoughtful and kind. And in addition to all of the evidence-based concrete habits that you'll learn in the book, it is like having a conversation with her, which I could do forever. So um, couldn't recommend the book more. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to pick it up. And um, with that, we'll catch everybody next week. Thank you so much.